Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 69, Colin Miller, a right to prove innocence after pleading guilty. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Colin Miller. Colin is professor of law and associate dean for faculty development at the University of South Carolina School of Law. Colin is also creator and editor of the Evidence Prof blog and co-host of the popular podcast, Undisclosed. Colin teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, and evidence, and his scholarship spans all of those fields. Our podcast today features Colin's new article, A Right to Prove Innocence After Pleading Guilty. In it, Colin looks at post-conviction innocence statutes, both those that provide a right to DNA testing and those that allow non-DNA-based claims of actual innocence. Specifically, Colin criticizes many of these statutes for barring defendants who plead guilty, and he develops a new constitutional claim for challenging these restrictions. My discussion with Colin tackles the origin of these post-conviction testing statutes, the problem of guilty pleas, and Colin's proposed constitutional claims. Colin, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Before we begin, let me just publicly thank you for your Evidence Prof blog. It's actually one of the few blogs that I routinely follow, and it's been a great resource of evidence news over the years. So thanks. Yeah, thanks. I've been doing that since 2007 now, so I guess it's been 11, 12 years. The focus of your article is post-conviction innocent statutes, both those that involve DNA and those that involve non-DNA actual innocence claims. To start us off, can you tell us a little bit more about those statutes and how they came to be? Yeah, so basically we had the DNA revolution in sort of the late 1980s where Prior to that, it was really tough for people who were wrongfully convicted to prove their innocence. And then all of a sudden, we have this new DNA technology, and that birthed the Innocence Project in New York and the first post-conviction DNA testing statute where people who are convicted can seek testing of items from the crime scene and prove their innocence. And then as sort of a corollary to that, we have a lot of jurisdictions that create these freestanding actual innocence statutes that allow for people to prove their innocence through non-DNA evidence. And what do these statutes require to get relief? I understand that the statutes vary, of course, from state to state, but maybe you can give a little basic overview on what those statutes normally demand. Yeah, it really does vary pretty widely from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Some have statutes of limitations that say you have to bring your claim within a certain number of years of conviction. The burden of proof in terms of what you're trying to establish goes all the way from sort of a probable cause up to preponderance of the evidence or even clear and convincing evidence. But basically, it's something along the lines of, you know, you were convicted of a sexual assault or a burglary. There is physical evidence from the crime scene. 
So maybe you get DNA testing. And then the question is, would the results of that testing have made a difference at trial? And again, that might be something where you have to establish it's more likely than not. It's sort of the preponderance of the evidence. It might be, according to some jurisdictions, clear and convincing evidence. And so, you know, obviously, if that DNA profile is a match for someone who's a serial rapist, that's going to be pretty strong evidence. If it is not a match for the defendant, but it doesn't hit to someone in the system, that's where you sort of have questions of well, what was the strength of the other evidence against the defendant, and is that enough to have this conviction thrown out? And if you don't have DNA, these actual innocence statutes, do they require even more because you don't have the scientific evidence to create that really slam dunk case? Yeah, typically the burden of proof for those is higher, although, again, it does vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But yeah, usually those burdens of proof are higher for exactly the reason you said. We're back in the pre-DNA territory where, you know, you have a witness who recants or you have maybe an alibi witness who appears. And the question is, is that enough to move the needle? So one of the key requirements in these statutes and this topic of your article is that defendants who plead guilty usually don't qualify under these innocent statutes. Why not? And is there a reason for the distinction? Yeah, so Ohio is sort of singular in that its statute explicitly says you had to have gone to trial. If you plead guilty, you're not eligible. There are a lot of other statutes that have as a requirement that identity was an issue at the time of the conviction. And so there are a number of jurisdictions that read that to say, well, if you pleaded guilty, then clearly identity was not an issue and therefore you're not allowed to seek relief. There are some statutes that make reference to a trial or a verdict. And so if you pleaded guilty, obviously there was no trial. Verdict typically refers to a jury verdict. So again, there's no verdict when there's a guilty plea. And so that procedurally is how many states say that those who pleaded guilty can't get relief. In terms of the reasoning, Courts have had different approaches. They'll say, well, it's unfair to the state. There was no trial where they could sort of test the defense witnesses. And so therefore, unlike with a trial, there's nothing to measure this DNA evidence against. Some courts have found it's sort of a mockery on the court for a defendant to plead guilty and then later claim, oh, wait, I have this evidence of innocence. So those would be sort of the two big ones that some courts have relied on. Now, your article deals primarily with constitutional challenges to this distinction, but I assume your policy preference is that as a matter of statutory law, you would prefer that the distinction not exist. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. And luckily, I was able to work with the Pennsylvania Innocence Project last year. Pennsylvania was one of the states that had identity an issue as part of their statute. And so they were able to work with the legislature there last fall. And they now allow, as of late last year, earlier this year, for people who pleaded guilty to seek relief. And so certainly that's my goal is to work with innocence projects and to get them to work with legislators to get rid of this distinction in the statutes. But then barring that, certainly a constitutional challenge would be the fallback. Tell me why, as a policy preference, you don't buy the arguments that the other courts have come up with for why a guilty plea defendant would not qualify for the statute or the DNA testing or the actual innocence statute? Yeah, well, I think when you look at the numbers empirically, the last few years, it's been about 40, 45% of people who are exonerated based upon the National Registry of Exonerations who were convicted after a guilty plea as opposed to as the result of a trial. 
And I think this old thinking that it's a mockery on the court and how could you plead guilty and then claim innocence, that just doesn't square with all we know about false confessions and people pleading guilty who are innocent. There's sort of a crisis in criminal defense work, both in terms of public defender systems and even just in sort of the defense bar generally. Lots of reasons why, especially the indigent, plead guilty. And so I think that rationale kind of goes away. In terms of the lack of a trial, this is interesting because it's another issue that I'm working on, is we have this split among courts under the Brady Doctrine. Brady, of course, saying there's this affirmative obligation on the prosecution to disclose material exculpatory evidence. And some jurisdictions say, if you pleaded guilty, you have no right to Brady material. Other jurisdictions say, even if you plead guilty, you have the right to Brady material. And so the argument against these DNA statutes is to say, well, there's no trial against which to measure this evidence. But if we look at the Brady context, the jurisdictions that allow these claims by pleading defendants, and even the ineffective assistance of counsel context based upon cases like Missouri versus Fry and Lafler versus Cooper, we have circumstances where people plead guilty and then they can later show, I wouldn't have pleaded guilty if I had been given effective representation by counsel and or if this exculpatory evidence had been turned over to me. I think the exact same analysis can easily apply here. If we have the prosecution with tons of evidence against the defendants and DNA testing wouldn't have moved the needle, they still would have pleaded guilty. Fine, we can uphold the conviction. But there's tons of cases out there where it's a relatively weak case person pleads guilty because they fear a lengthy prison term. They think they might lose a trial. And then later, DNA testing from the crime scene can prove their innocence and can prove they wouldn't have pleaded guilty. So these cases are suggesting that if the prosecution violates Brady and then you issue a guilty plea or the prosecution hasn't gotten around to Brady yet and you plead guilty, you can actually have a claim Right. Yeah. So the classic case, it's uh, out of West Virginia, the Supreme Court of West Virginia, Buffy versus Ballard, is a case where there was DNA testing done before the defendant pleaded guilty. And it basically showed that he was not a contributor to the semen sample in the victim. And he pleaded guilty. And thereafter, West Virginia says, we're going to allow a Brady claim, even though it's a guilty plea. And the analysis they use is to say, we think that this defendant would not have pleaded guilty if he knew the DNA results before the trial started. Now, that's not the exact situation here, because the situation here is it's not a Brady claim. The testing wasn't done before the guilty plea. But there is this material from the crime scene that can be tested after the person's convicted. And I think that exact same analysis that applies in that Brady context could apply to this post-conviction DNA context. Yeah, I think conceptually, there's something a little different because if the Brady violation occurs before the plea, you could argue, well, the wrongdoing showed up and the claim or effectively the, the state is a stop from complaining if the defendant wants to withdraw the plea. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's a broader point that you're making here. And conceptually, what you're saying is we should be less formal in our approach to guilty pleas. Right now, the way that the doctrine sits, it's that the system views guilty pleas as either some kind of final settlement or an admission of guilt, which then becomes unassailable. And you're saying, look, we have to be a little bit more practical about how we look at these guilty pleas. Sometimes it's just the best option for the defendant. And so it's not really an admission of guilt. And it's not really a settlement, particularly because 
if you have a continuing harm, you're keeping this person wrongfully in prison, you should be able to review the underlying conviction. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. And in terms of that conceptual distinction, you know, that's exactly what the Supreme Court finds in the Osborne case that I talk about in the paper, which the Osborne case is a case where the defendant seeks post-conviction DNA testing in Alaska and the statute doesn't allow it. He doesn't meet the statutory qualifications. And he says, I have a substantive due process right to have this DNA testing. And the Supreme Court says, no, you don't. And the Ninth Circuit in that case had actually found that this was analogous to Brady. And they say, well, no, this is a post-conviction context. It's not that type of estoppel. And that's what prevented relief is that courts have looked at this case and said, well, there's no substantive due process right. It did recognize a limited procedural due process right, but it's so limited that it's never allowed for a constitutional claim. And then so getting to that estoppel point you mentioned, that's kind of the thrust of the article, which is to say... This is a case where states have set up a mechanism for people to get post-conviction relief. They can, in all states, get post-conviction DNA testing. In some states, bring this freestanding claim of actual innocence. And then my argument is we have this right that's been recognized. It's a right of meaningful access to the courts. And it doesn't allow for courts and states to make these distinctions among defendants. Namely, in the Halbert case, they say we can't distinguish among defendants who pleaded guilty and those who went to trial. And so the attempt here is to say, yeah, it's not that complete mapping of Brady to this situation, but it is something where when you look at the right of meaningful access to the courts, I don't think we can make these distinctions. To your point, it can't be that formal that we're going to prevent this whole category of defendants from seeking relief. What you were developing there was effectively your constitutional argument. So let me turn to that and have you develop it. Your article basically develops a strategy for attacking these restrictions on defendants who have pled guilty. Tell us how that works. There are these two-part hybrid right that you develop here. Yeah, and so basically there's this right. It's sort of alternatively referred to as the right of access to the courts or the right of meaningful access to the courts. There's some sort of debate about historically where it is initially recognized, but the Griffin case by the Supreme Court, which is dealing with the right to trial transcript on appeal, is sort of recognized as the first main case. And conceptually, it's a little bit difficult because the Supreme Court hasn't spoken with a clear voice in this. What they have said, though, is the right of access to the courts has an aspect of equal protection and an aspect of procedural due process. And that basically what that right means is if a state doesn't want to create a right to an appeal, then that's fine. They just don't create the right and then nobody has that right. But then once they set a framework and say, here is a right to appeal, they can't make these arbitrary distinctions among defendants in exercising that right. And so the Halbert case is a case dealing with the right to counsel on direct appeal. And basically Michigan creates this distinction and says, if you went to trial and were convicted, you have an automatic right of direct appeal and you have the right to counsel if you're indigent. If you pleaded guilty, it's a discretionary right to appeal. And so then the judges in Michigan start saying, because it's discretionary, we're not going to give you appointed counsel on appeal, even if you're indigent. And what the Supreme Court says is, well, no, that violates the right to access the courts. You can't have this framework that allows for those who went to trial to have this appeal and to have counsel and then not have that same right that applies for people who pleaded guilty. Your argument here is a nuanced one. I think it's well-founded in the doctrine and you can make it out. 
I want to ask you a little more broadly about where this right to access might go. So your argument is primarily an equal protection one. Would there be a right to access if you actually didn't have the post-conviction DNA testing statute there in the first place? You would not, which is, it might create perverse consequences because maybe a state wants to get rid of their statute if this right is recognized. But yeah, that's an essential component of this right to access the courts is that this right exists in the first place. That's sort of the the procedural due process, that they have this procedure for people to have their convictions overturned. And then the equal protection component is to say, once you have that right, it has to be distributed equally and we can't have these distinctions. Yeah, if a state, you know, if South Carolina decided tomorrow we're, we're going to get rid of our post-conviction DNA statute, they could do that. And that would mean that no one would be able to seek post-conviction DNA testing. But that seems a bit extreme, right? If you took it away and there was an actual innocence claim, yeah, I guess the doctrine doesn't permit it. But it would seem that there would be some wiggle room, whether in due process or in this right to access of the courts, that would suggest that you should be able to bring it in extreme cases. And I think that gets back to the Osborne opinion, where the Supreme Court does say there is a limited procedural due process right to this testing, and they find that Alaska statute satisfies that. So I do think if, for instance, South Carolina got rid of their statute, there might be a procedural due process claim. That wouldn't be covered by my argument, but yeah, there could be an alternate avenue in that case. Now, of course, every state has one, so that wouldn't be a claim, but yeah, that, that could be an alternate ground for relief. Yeah, that goes without saying. I understand that your claim is a very limited one, and you don't actually have to make the big claim. My question was broadly just to situate whether or not the claim could be broader. And and the reason why I ask that is there just seems to be conceptually something about a trade-off between accuracy and finality that's going on here. Yes, we want litigated cases to be final, but the desire for accuracy, which sometimes defers to the need for finality, this desire for accuracy is going to trump finality sometimes when you have some kind of continuing wrong, that there is someone who you continue to imprison, even though all of the information suggests that they should be let out. Yeah, and the Osborne court recognizes in their opinion that a number of states under their state constitutions have recognized a substantive due process right to post-conviction DNA testing. So that would be another ground. Osborne obviously speaks to procedural due process and has a limited right. But yeah, they do say in the Osborne opinion, there are a number of states that constitutionally have said, yeah, I think sort of for the reasons you're mentioning here, that we have a substantive due process right. So that would be a sort of a third ground of relief under a state constitution. Final question for you. So what's next? Are there extensions of this project that you are currently working on? Are there other places that you'd like to see others pursue in the future along these lines? Yeah, and so the first would be the legislative. And as I said, I was lucky enough to work with the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, and they got their law changed. My goal with this article is certainly to take this to other innocence projects and legislators and seek to have the jurisdictions that have these laws change them. And then the second is I've recently written another piece and actually I have an accompanying amicus brief that's the Supreme Court that involves basically the Brady aspect of this, which is the split that I mentioned before. Some jurisdictions say the Brady right applies even to people who pleaded guilty. 
other jurisdictions don't. And so there's this case that is currently on cert petition to the Supreme Court. The court's requested a response from the city of Brownsville. It is this ninth grade special education student who is at a detention center in Brownsville. He was charged with assaulting a peace officer. He pleads guilty four years into his eight-year sentence. They finally get the surveillance video that had been withheld to that point, and it basically shows the correctional officers attacking this ninth grade student, and he brings a Brady claim and gets appealed all the way to the Fifth Circuit, which finds the Brady right to exculpatory evidence doesn't apply to those who have pleaded guilty. And so I kind of see these as companion pieces. This piece is saying the evidence isn't tested until after the person pleads guilty. How do they get relief? And then the other component is to say, when the state has this evidence before the person pleads guilty, here's why I think there's a Brady right to that evidence. And so we're hoping that case gets taken by the Supreme Court because, you know, 95% of convictions or so are based on guilty pleas. And Brady loses a lot of its meaning if it doesn't apply before a guilty plea. Wow, that's an unbelievable case. Brady or no Brady, it would seem to implicate certain constitutional rights. So that's a very interesting thing. I certainly look forward to your future work there. Well, Colin, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to us about post-conviction innocence statutes and how they apply to defendants who plead guilty. Great having you on the show. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me. The tension in law between accuracy and finality is practically as old as time. Overprotect finality, and you promote and sanction injustice, as well as cause the legal system to lose its legitimacy. At the same time, seek accuracy without duly considering finality, and litigation will never end. The courts become overwhelmed, and once again, potentially lose their legitimacy. In this tension, Post-conviction DNA testing statutes are something of a no-brainer. With DNA providing relatively quick, low-cost, and potentially conclusive evidence of innocence, trading a little bit of finality for a mountain of accuracy is an easy call, particularly when a defendant has maintained his or her innocence all along. Non-DNA actual innocence statutes are a bit more difficult, but properly circumscribed, are motivated by a very similar kind of trade-off. Guilty pleas, though, are a trickier case. Here you have defendants who have agreed to a deal in exchange for certainty. Frequently, you also have a sworn admission of guilt. Should the guilty plea defendant be afforded the same second bite of the apple as someone who has always proclaimed his or her innocence? As my discussion with Colin explored, much of Colin's position has to do with realism. The pressures placed on a defendant to plea necessarily means that those agreements are not really bargains struck between equals. The subsequent admissions of guilt are similarly tainted by the high stakes. So perhaps we should abandon the formalism and call a spade a spade. Now, all of this is merely a policy preference. The restrictions remain on the books, and so constitutional challenges may be the only viable attack. Colin teaches that an argument based on the right of access to courts may be the right recipe. 
or at a minimum, that hybrid right may be just the proverbial peg on which a sympathetic judge can hang his or her hat. In the meantime, I'd like to encourage us all to think more about this tension between finality and accuracy. If you agree with Colin and support opening up post-conviction challenges to guilty plea defendants, how much further should the argument be taken? Should there be a post-conviction right to litigating certain types of actual innocence claims, regardless of the existence of a statute? Should the right extend to certain civil claims? If you think about it, it's a fundamental question that goes to the very heart of the legal system. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Megan Cole, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.